Welcome. I'm Rabbi Abigail True. I'm the director of the Center for Jewish Living and the Sana Ben Center for Israel here. I am so grateful to all of you for coming and for being together tonight. Um, I'm so grateful to my colleague Susie Kessler for setting up this evening and for all of the work she has done running Makom over the past gazillion years. And I'm so grateful to each of you for being here. And so I want to welcome, um, with just a word or two of background for each of our speakers and teachers tonight, Jay Michelson uh, works at the intersection of politics and spirituality. He is a columnist for the Daily Beast and a frequent commentator on MSNBC and NPR. And he is a teacher and editor at 10% Happier, a leading meditation platform, as well as the author of six books on contemplative practice. He was a professional LGBT activist for 10 years, holds a PhD in religion from Hebrew University, a JD from Yale Law School, and non-denominational rabbinic ordination, and is an affiliated assistant professor at Chicago Theological Seminary. <laughs> this is a non-competitive situation. <laughs> Uh, Jessica Mori, who led us in such a beautiful grounding, uh, warming us up for this evening, is the executive director and lead teacher of Inward Bound Mindfulness Education, a nonprofit organization bringing in-depth mindfulness and compassion training to teens, young adults, and the parents and professionals who support them. She began practicing meditation at age 14 on teen retreats offered by IMS. She's currently in the IMS 2017 to 2021 teacher training program. Jessica has attended longer retreats in Asia and the US and is a founding board member and lead teacher for IBME, IBME teen retreats. Before joining IBME, Jessica worked in clean energy and climate policy and finance. She holds a BA in environmental engineering and master's degrees. You don't seem to want me to read this, so I'm going to turn the page. <laughs> I didn't Say welcome, quote. Jessica. <laughs> uh, and Sensei Koshin Paley Ellison co-founded the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care the first Zen-based organization to offer fully accredited ACPE clinical chaplaincy training in America. New York Zen Center delivers contemplative approaches to care through education, direct service, and meditation practice. Paley Ellison is the academic advisor for the Buddhist students in the Master in Pastoral Care and Counseling Program at, and this is an acronym, NYZ, CCC's education partner, the New York Theological Seminary. He has served as the co-director of contemplative care services for the Department of Integrative Medicine and as the chaplaincy supervisor for the pain and palliative care department at Mount Sinai Beth Israel Medical Center. I could go on because there's so much impressive. I'm mostly going to hold up his book, which is what gathers us here tonight. Um, and we're so privileged to hear all of you and to be joining at the end of the program. The doors back here will open up, um, or maybe those doors, I'm not sure. And there will be books for sale and some light refreshments so we can gather as a community and um, and and enjoy Koshin's book as well. So welcome. Thank you. So, so sweet to be with all of you and to be with Jay and Jessica. JMO. You can call me JMO. <laughs> so I just wanted to read. This is a book that I was had no intention to write, but uh, I had put a number of years had put together a book called Awake at the Bedside, which is a compilation of 
writings by Buddhist teachers and physicians about how to be awake at the bedside and how we care for people. And the publisher really wanted me to do another book. And I said, no way, you know. And they said, well, what could we do to, you know, sweeten the deal? And I said, well, if you hire my friend Emma <laughs> to work with me every week to be my editor and to really sit with me every week. And so this book really came out of I realized that I did have something to say and I really wanted to talk about intimacy and relationships and how to kind of really ground ourselves in our own ethics and values and what really matters to us. Because what we live in the age of social isolation and there's so much trouble and we're all so caught in our heads. And how do we learn how to drop our story and so I wanted also to write a book about my own struggles with that and to share those. And so this book really feels um, very intimate to me and also is a deeply, comes from a lots of work of many people. And so I'm just happy to be here with you. So the book originally was supposed to be called Zombieland. <laughs> but the publisher didn't like that, and then they put a heart on the cover. And uh, <laughs> I said that sells more books. But, uh, but for me, Zombieland is really that you know, existence that we have when we're just going and going and going with our distractions and really not taking the time to really pay attention. And, you know, as I often think of even how I talk to myself, it's like, Koshin, just cut your shit and pay attention. Where are you? You know, and how easily we can come into like some dream of a life, but not a dream that we often like. And so how do we cut through that? And so that with, you know, as much love and compassion as we can muster, but otherwise it's serious Mishugana. <laughs> so, I want to just read a little bit. Uh, these two suggested that I read from it. Do you need me to find the page for you, Christian? I edited some of these um, passages in Koshin's book for on the 10% Happier app. We have these short little talks by teachers, five to 10 minute little recorded talks. And these were perfect. Um, so I feel like I know your book very, very well. And it was a tough choice selecting. I wanted to, there's a story in the book that maybe we'll talk about later, which is this really harrowing story of growing up uh, with extreme anti-Semitism, violence and uh, gun violence in your youth. Um, but I thought we would start with caring for your bubby. It's, uh, it's such a sweet story. And so I thought I love how much of Koshin is in this particular story. Yeah. So the book is around the 16 Bodhisattva precepts. And those of you who are not familiar with what a Bodhisattva means, it means basically like being a mensch, being a good person, thinking about others. Right. So it says, there are a few ways, things to keep in mind as you begin to work with these precepts. The first is that 
they're not meant to be a destination. They're more like the North Star. You travel toward it, but you never arrive. There's no state of perfection to achieve, no per perfect person to become. If there is a goal, it is to rest in being perfectly imperfect. So if some of the precepts are more difficult for you than others, it's okay. Don't beat yourself up and remember that to live a life of love includes you in that love too. The second might be best illustrated by a story. I have a student named Claire who was involved in a biosphere project where scientists created their own miniature world. It's amazing that people did that. Mm -hmm. It was the size of three football fields and they brought in forests and lakes and marsh and deserts, 3,800 species of animals and eight human beings. One striking thing about this biosphere, Claire told me, was that the trees didn't do well at all. They just wouldn't grow straight. The scientists found that it was because there was no resistance in the biosphere, no storms, no winds, no extremes of temperature, which are the things that strengthen what is called the heartwood of the tree that gives it its true resilience. We can practice developing heartwood through being fully alive in the winds of life. There's no use pretending that life isn't hard sometimes, but it's also wonderful and amazing and a million other things. This book is about embracing those countless qualities. You don't need to be happy about all the bad things life contains, and you don't need to solely identify with them either. Even the worst situations may have beneficial outcomes if you wait long enough to see them arise. So much depends on our ability to hold both a wide and focused view together. The key thing to remember, especially when you encounter difficulties when enacting these values in your life, is this. Keep going. I want to tell you one more story. One of the most beloved figures in my life was my grandma, Mimi, who on her deathbed taught me how to love in the way I hope this book teaches you. I was one of her primary caregivers in the last five years of her life, and I was staying with her at the very end in the hospice where she was actively dying. And one night she woke me up in the middle of the night shouting, wake up, wake up. I was immediately upright. She was crying and when she said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I didn't know what I said. For what, I asked. 
And she said, I didn't know until this moment that what it meant to truly love you, she responded. This is quite startling to me because I had never felt so loved by anyone before. I felt adored by her. And adoring of her, but she had never quite gotten the Buddhist monk situation, it turns out. <laughs> and she told me that part of her had contracted away from me because of it. Only now that I'm dying, she said, do I understand what loving really means? It means to love all the things about someone even the things that frighten you or you don't understand. So I feel like maybe we could just pause there. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. What does loving mean to you? Yeah. Well, um, uh, that the the biosphere was my a quote I picked out from your book. I love that story, mm -hmm. and that um, has really landed for me recently. Mm -hmm. So we were sort of talking about the, this idea of what is it? Um, it can as meditators, um, it can be a real emphasis on just like stopping, going inside, especially in my tradition and the inside tradition. We go on these long, silent retreats. And I went on my first long, silent retreat at 18. Went to a monastery, shaved my hair, and um, did a three-month in college. Uh, so I was really hardcore into meditating and like kind of good at it in the sense of I did it. Um, <laughs> and I feel like since then, so I got a lot of intensive practice time in. And... Um, but since then, what I've been learning then over the, the, then the following 20 years is uh, how does that, what does that mean for being in the world? You know, how does that show up in relationship? Um, so I can sit on the cushion. I do a lot of loving kindness practice. I send people love. But then what happens when I'm interacting with someone and it's not there? You know, I'm not in this, like, deep state of uh, uh, peace and ease. So um, for me, I feel like that's the real practice. Like this is the PhD, if you will, <laughs> of practice. Uh, is, so I now run a nonprofit, and that's actually the hardest part of, of my practice, is like being, um, leading an organization, being someone's boss, managing budgets, fundraising, having to let people go, hiring people. Uh, and, and it's really intense because they also, I'm also the person that shows up at the front of the room and starts talking about love, right? So how do I um, actually not, not be a hypocrite every day when I show up in the office? You know, and not, it's not a hypocrite, but how do I actually be integrated? Um, so what do I do? Paying attention, definitely step one, yeah. And being really um, vulnerable. We're do, I'm doing a lot of work with actually being honest about what's happening for me and not having solutions and answers all the time. 
and uh, actually learning how to communicate. So feedback systems um, is a major part of the work I do. So what, I wonder like actually like what, if you can tell share a specific story about what it's like running an organization mm -hmm. that is a benefit to so many people. So to me, one of the things I try to explore in the book is to this wholeheartedness and mm -hmm. how do we, and how do we do that in the midst of when we're in the fight with our parent or mm -hmm. or running an organization? And how do you remember in the midst of those struggles? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the way that I, I remember, I use body awareness almost all the time. So some sense of like holding my attention somewhere in my body. And that's just one place where I, um, can stay connected and watch what's happening. And I also f use the back line of my body, so I feel the back, actually just kind of right inside my spine, is a place that just feels kind of neutral and grounded. I use my feet. So there's some part of my attention that can go there when I know things are getting squirrely. I feel into that. And then try to actually speak from that place, trusting this, this openness and this grounded quality of my body. That's part of it. I mean, the other thing that I do want to say that, that, that's been this transformation is um, the world isn't like a monastery. <laughs> you might know that. But it's not structured. Even running a nonprofit that's like doing all this benefit for the world, there's a lot of pressure to run like a business. You know, the models that we have for leadership or success don't feel necessarily aligned with my Buddhist values and the ways that I, what I practice when I'm sitting on the cushion. So figuring out, it feels like creating a whole new model of running an organization and being with people. That's not, uh, I don't see clear pathways in many places of success that way. So yeah, what, what came for me in hearing that excerpt fresh was the, um, loving the part of every part of the person, including the part we don't understand. And like probably a few other people in the room, I'm mindful of the sort of Jewish holiday season that's getting underway. And I've really struggled over the years with the Jewish approach to that. Um, one of the rituals on the, in the season is this kind of literally beating of the breast touchy-feely progressive Jews, we just put our hand on our heart, we don't beat our breast. So we're like, we've, we've adapted it, softened it. But even so, even with that adaptation for me, I think it's so hard to like have a, a litany of here's what I did wrong. And yet there's also a value to that, right? There's a real value to that introspection process. It's always a sort of, a, it's funny in the Jewish liturgy, there's a little cop out because it's, it's in the plural. So you can always, so it's like, on the one hand, it's nice. It's this collective atonement. On the other hand, it's like, well, I didn't take any bribes this year, so I'm good on that one. <laughs> like, I used to do that as a teenager. We'd go through the list, and there's like 60 or 70 of these things. You know, we've slandered, and we've trespassed, and we've told gossip. And like, some I would definitely have failed every year, like the gossip one. Um, and then I would be like, well, what is slander? And, you know, I went to law school. So it's like, well, the legal definition of slander and I love this, you know, so that's like, it sort of occupies one pole for me of that. You know, the other pole is forgiving too much in a certain way of not, of like, oh, well, I love every part of myself, therefore I can still be a schmuck. Mm 
or I can still be a toxic masculine jerk because I love every part of myself, including the part of me that's a jerk. Or So there's this, this dance between these poles for me. And I actually found it was interesting. I've written about this, but like growing up as a, as a closeted gay person, there was like one sin in particular that occupied like 98% of my Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur obsession. And everything else got pushed to the side. And this, what happened for me was when I was able to not do that <laughs> and love that part, then there was almost, it almost became possible to love the parts that really were harmful, right? So there was this hating of a part which was not harmful. And so any introspection, any tshuva, that's sort of the Hebrew word for return, repentance, or this whole process, any tshuva hurt. And I have to admit, it still sort of does. Because for 25 years or 20 years, let's say, I, I had this glare on this part of myself, and it was impossible to have the glare without hating that. It's like this thing. And so I still really am a work in progress on doing that dance where there's an honest, you know, I love like Shamo, what you said about the, you know, you want to be honest and truthful with, like, I love that honesty uh, where it meets the parts that I don't understand about myself and kind of shining a light in that. And I wish I could say that I've now made Yom Kippur good for me and kosher and great. Like now I love that ritual and we're going to actually, we could do a plug. Should we do a plug? Kosh and I are going to be co-leading meditation at Labshul um, at Hammerstein Ballroom, which is wild. I love that, like, having gone to, like, the black party at the Roseland, I can lead meditation at the Hammerstein. Um, and yet it's definitely still a struggle for me. It's hard for me to, like, hold someplace where I've really fallen short of my own aspiration for myself and not re-trigger that trauma of, of hating parts of myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have a story in the book about, so Koshin has a, I don't, not anymore, I guess, but Koshin had, when he was writing the book, a troll, someone who would follow him online all the time and say nasty things and say nasty, send nasty emails and conduct a campaign of harassment. And this is all in the book. And just for 18 just for 18 months, he just said off mic. And, you know, in one of my careers, I'm out there a lot. And I, I, but I sort of deserve my haters. Like I say controversial things and people who disagree with them, some percentage of them share. are haters. Yeah, share their opinions. But I wonder if you could, I mean, for me, the part that I could relate least to the book because it's so far beyond my, like you're so far ahead of me on this particular part is like, how do you, how do, how were you in relationship to that troll? Because a, a lot, so what we see a lot at 10% Happier, right, is a secular meditation app, and we're constantly asking people who use the app, like, what's up for you? And every, like, everyone, for, it's mostly liberals, right, who use a meditation app, but, like, people are not just, like, sort of upset about the news, but they're having trouble sleeping, or they're fearful, deeply fearful, or they're filled with anger all the time including at friends or acquaintances who don't see things the way they do. And if, it, like, if you've already, if I've already, I'll just speak in first person, if I've already alienated my Republican friends, like, well, I can be angry at my liberal friends who are either too left-wing or not left-wing enough. Or, and 
it feels similar in a way. Like it feels like we all, we don't have all trolls like you had in that story, which I thought was like harrowing. But how, how did you work with extreme negativity, which we all can relate to? Uh, yeah. Mm. For me, it's very related to, um, you know, the lineage of my history. And so the being the lineage of Holocaust survivors. So I feel like, and, and I also grew up with a grandfather who was like constantly, like he held this book in front of me all the time. He would always pick it up. It was like very worn. It was said the indestructible Jews. It's like, you know, don't trust your neighbors, in particular the white Christian ones, because they're the ones who will come get you. And that's actually what happened to most of our family. Most of our family were not killed by Nazis. They were killed by their neighbors in Hungary and Russia and in Poland by their neighbors before. Um, so I have to say that part of, you know, I grew up with this kind of victim mentality where I kind of like feeling like, uh-oh, danger. And actually, you know, you talk about another story in the book where we're actually, we're, we were shot at as Jews and like all kinds of things. I should and say you grew up in way upstate New York, right? Upstate New York, yeah. actually like three and a half hours from here. Um, not that far. Yeah. So, yeah, so I had this troll who was informed by these, like, there was these two people who were spreading all these rumors about me, saying I was doing all these terrible things, which was its own interesting thing. And this troll got put that information and it made them, they were mentally ill, clearly, and it actually, so they were suffering. And they were sending, you know, between five and 10 emails a day to me, but they would mask their email. So they would send it because they would like look up my social media or something like that. And so they knew who I was friends with or who associated with. So I would get emails from Jay Michelson about like tonight or whatever would be the subject line. Then you open it and it's like this horrific, like you're the most disgusting, smelly Jew, you know, money grubbing, not real. You know, just, you know, it was a lot of sharing. And, uh, <laughs> and it was always like, it was so hard because you just never knew they would constantly change the name of the person. So it, like you'd always open it. It was, hard. it was impossible to spam it, you know, like they figured out how to do that. And it was incredibly painful. And and I really had to work in a way that I had not worked in a long time. I feel like, you know, I have this uh, real understanding about this practice that we never arrive. And I was like, yeah, we never arrive. And, you know, <laughs> and I realized that I had thought that maybe there was like a part of my brain that felt like, well, maybe we have arrived and we're good now. We're compassionate. We basically live an ethical life where, you know, and then 
you know, this troll comes and not like the troll under the bridge, like this, like with a club and, you know, then sending emails to like kind of everyone I know and, you know, about like how disgusting I am and, yeah. So I did actually, but I think that to me, so it was really like a learning trial by fire about what compassion actually is. Do I actually believe in compassion? And to me, it like brought a lot into question. Like, what do I even mean by being compassionate? And so in Buddhism, there's this difference between compassion and what, at least in some schools, they call idiot compassion. Just like loving everybody no matter what. And, you know, I made police, filed many police reports and that was not effective because there was no actual threat to my body. They said, well, after, if they actually physically attack you, then we would do something, you know? Anyway, so I actually worked very hard and talked to everyone I know and figured out that I had like one degree of separation to a commissioner and like got on the scene. And during that whole time, so then they started looking for this person. They had the capacity from the cyber crimes unit to do that. And so to me, it was like this real struggle between how do I actually learn how to love this person and not like what they're doing? And not only do I not like what they're doing, I hold them completely responsible for what they're doing and want them to serve, be served justice for what they're doing and learning how to love them. Doesn't mean I want to hang out with them. <laughs> but I realized that there was like this embittered place in my being that this whole event really kicked up in me in such a painful way that I realized like that I was being as, you know, some of these stories of like Nelson Mandela or the Dalai Lama and different people talk about, you know, how you can still be a capture of this troll in your own mind. And I wanted to be free and I want to be free. So like learning how to, and they finally did capture him and they handcuffed him and took him out of his house and was arraigned. And I went to one of the meetings at the court and just to see him. And it turns out I knew the person, you know. And just to be able to look at him without hatred. And so glad that he was in handcuffs. <laughs> like that combination to me is really interesting. And to me, like I feel like the work of compassion, like whoever it is that we think we hate, what is that, how is that okay? And you're talking about the polarization of this world. We live in a, such a deeply polarized world. I don't know who you are interested in politically, but I find Trump rather difficult. 
<laughs> and so I don't know even know where it came from, but like somebody sent me a Trump Buddha. And he's so cute. And he's like this little Trump Buddha and he's like this and he has this little heart. And every morning after my practice in the morning, I, mm, I love... I love you, little Trump Buddha. <laughs> and I fe it feels so good. Like, instead of just hating this person all the time, and actually, it's very wonderful to learn how to, like, soften what is rigid in myself. And again, it doesn't mean that I agree with anything. <laughs> but hatred is so painful and is no joke and so to me one of the beautiful things that we have the opportunity to do is to really work with that Because otherwise, it only eats you alive. It's like that famous story about, you know, drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> On that note. <laughs> J-Mos. Have a glass of water. Oh, so many things. There's a few things that you've said that really resonated for me. And... Um, one that's coming up in this moment is I think the, the confusion that I've had of that compassion is the same as nice, right? That there's some, there's, a, and I mean, probably also based on being a woman and like my conditioning, how I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to be nice, right? And, um, and, and what- You are nice. <laughs> yes, you think so. Sometimes. <laughs> so, um, really recognizing that, uh, that, that those aren't necessarily the same things. And again, where it's really come up for me is, so I won't use thinking that if I say something that could hurt someone's feelings is not nice, so don't say it. Or is like difficult for them to hear. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. That's gonna be difficult for someone to hear. Um, and so, but actually the, the Buddha taught that right speech is you, you examine, is it true? Uh, is it beneficial? And if it's true and beneficial and it's pleasing, then go ahead and say it. If it's true and beneficial, but it's not gonna be pleasing, you figure out the right time to say it, but you still say it, right? So th that, that idea that people might, you might say something that's not pleasing and they're, they're gonna, it's not gonna be, they're not gonna like it, but it can still be the most compassionate thing that you do. So those kinds of pieces have been like a, a huge learning for me. The other thing that what you were just saying about hatred, what I'm really practicing right now is around grief and around how to be with, um, the only way I can move through hatred is through, is through grief. So there's a quote of a, one of my main mentors right now that um, when there's a separation between what we want in the world and what is, that gap needs to be bridged. And we can, it will be bridged by violence unless we mourn. And so that violence can be either towards ourselves or towards others. 
And so the other opportunity, like you build a bridge by doing the grief work. So for me, like just the grief work of like, wow, this is real. Like Trump is the president, you know? I mean, I couldn't sleep for days. Most because he reminds me of my father, um, unfortunately. So uh, yeah, I couldn't sleep. But the only way I can get through that is just like you can't uh, just to face it full on and like feel the searing sadness and tenderness of like, I don't want it to be like this. That kind of reminds me of um, a lot of people probably know Joanna Macy, who's this wonderful uh, Buddhist teacher, environmentalist, poet, other things. And she, one of her pieces of work from, I guess it's now 20, almost 30 years ago, was investigating why so many people are willing to buy the lies about climate change. We know why the lies exist, because they're paid for by the fossil fuel industry and others. Okay, so but, but there are a lot of lies out there. Why do so many people buy into denial? And this was back 30 years ago when there wasn't as much evidence as there now. And kind of her work has been very similar to what I just heard you say, which is the enormity of the grief and fear is just, is just too much. And so she trained a lot of teachers to kind of teach a kind of, it's not quite meditation, but sort of meditative approach to kind of, can you really just be with those feelings of grief in this case or fear um, and just coexist with them so that when they arise in the case of climate change in, in her work, global warming, um, we don't have to sort of run away from them, which again, brings up for me this kind of Yom Kippur thing of like, can it, is it possible to just be with this feeling, which the first thing I think for a lot of us, when we feel grief, for me, a lot of the reason I feel anger is because I don't want to feel the grief. Like, it's a, it's a lot easier for me to be angry. Let's even take global warming. Like, when I actually think about it, so I, I, have, a new, I have a two-year-old daughter, and I really, it's, it's like a cliche, what kind of world are we leaving our, our children? But as a new parent, like, that's a very non-cliched, like, that's a very real phenomenon for me now. And I just wonder if I've done her any favors by bringing her into a world where there might be a billion climate refugees in 30 years mm -hmm. and all of the nationalist backlash that that will, that that will lead to. Um, I'm curious if that comes in, in in sort of the environmental piece that you're doing and, and also with the teenagers piece. And what that... You know, we talked, yeah, I'll leave it at that. And like what that process is, like is it possible to just be with the grief of whatever, choose your, and we don't, we'd be like exclusively partisan, but you know, kids in cages, that's pretty nonpartisan. That mm -hmm. brings up grief for a lot of people. Um, is it healthy to be with that? Is it not? How does, how does like our spiritual practice of whatever flavor influence our justice work and our engagement and our political engagement? Because as some of you may know, meditation in particular gets a sort of bad rap that it's just work on me. And I use it to anesthetize, I, people use it supposedly, according to yeah. this, to, yeah, to anesthetize themselves to the world. There are a lot of art, articles that get written every month that it's bad to meditate because you might be too happy. And if you're too happy, then you won't do work. You won't do justice work. You won't be, because you should be angry. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know, could we respond to that in some way? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there's something for me that I've been really paying attention to that there's like a way that we're, uh, it's, so we're also kind of a 
death-denying de culture, not kind of completely, <laughs> right? And, and the relationship between denying death, we close off life. It's just becoming so vivid and clear for me when I, um, as I feel into getting closer to death on my own. So I'm doing some death practice where you, you actually reflect on your own death. And um, what's amazing is when, when I do that, I feel closer to life. And so it's in a similar way when I feel the grief and really look at uh, the kids in cages and I don't want it that way. The, that tenderness that makes me then totally available. Then I walk outside and I see trees and flowers. Like the more that I connect with climate change, the more that I um, feel deeply in love with the world. Like I have these moments where I look out, like this, I live in near Boston and we've had these amazing days. I mean, I love being outside, so I say that a lot, but it feels like there's been these amazing days with these skies and the, the, the late fall flowers. And it's just like, I, it's like I'm taking a snapshot because I'm like, who knows? Who knows? Who knows how long I'm going to be like this? Will there be in 20 years? I'll be like, wow, you know, it used to be like that. Or sometimes when I go to the ocean and I think about uh, acidification, I'll have this image where I'm like, you know, it could happen that like the oceans will be unswimmable. And so this is amazing. Like, this is amazing. Here we, like, I can be in this incredible body of water and how it feels. So... There's something about actually facing and touching that that brings me into a relationship with it in a much deeper way. And the other thing is, I think we need to do it together. And this is a relational piece. Like, I'm really into the idea of grief rituals with people, mourning hmm. together. Hmm. That's another part of our culture is like, you can go cry in your room alone, right? But actually, there's so much, like we need to do that in spaces together so that we can, um, that's what's gonna give us the capacity to actually feel through the intensity and the enormity of what we're experiencing. We just, Chota, my husband and I, we just, the other day, we were 9-11, we took part and participated in this grief ritual at Lincoln Center in the midst of the plaza where these, there was 100 dancers and two Buddhist monks and uh, opera singers and it was like such a powerful for 45 minutes really early in the morning and I was like who's gonna come to that it was packed full of people like wanting this outdoor public no ticket event of just saying this happened and we can together create art and ritual and story around it mm -hmm. and how important that is to do that in public spaces, right? Shared. Yeah. Um, questions, anybody? We're going to... Or complaints. Or com no, 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 we're no, not do not ask. That was a joke. <laughs> that was purely sarcasm. Right. I'm going to hand you the microphone so that we get it into the system. Um, thank you very much for your presentations. It's um, very illuminating. Um, I have a question uh, about hate and anger. Um, I would agree that it's a very uncomfortable place to go to. Um, I'm one of those who can't sleep at night and I'm often troubled. And I'm a, I'm a good sleeper, but I'll wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning irate at Donald Trump. Um, my question is, 
Isn't there some level of evolutionary advantage to feeling that energy mm-hmm. and boundary of no? Like, no, that's not my values. No, I want to be more active and having the anger um, and energize me into something. I love that point question. I think that's totally, yeah, of course. Um, first of all, I, I, I go back to what you said, Koshin, about you know loving all of the pieces. Like hating the hatred or hating the anger, let's say, is not going to, that's not going to diffuse the anger or help you sleep. So just on a moment-to-moment level, there's that. But I agree. I guess the, 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 the piece that's been helpful for me, you know, so we all know that it's evolutionarily advantageous to also overstate risks, right? So if we're in some imaginary primeval world and we see that the grass, the tall grass over there, there's a rustle, it's evolutionarily advantage to run away every time that happens, even though nine times out of 10, it's not a tiger. Because if you don't run away in the 10th time, you won't be around. But today, most of the threats that we face are not as immediate as the tiger in the grass. So that same reaction that has an evolutionary advantage of being no, like that no, like on the one hand, it's back to that same dance, I feel like. On the one hand, I want to fully honor that and be like, that no is really serving me right now. It's served my species for <laughs> half a million years. And also, it's also keeping me awake at night because the no, what I'm saying no to isn't in the room. It's not, it's not the moment, like it's not a threat that I have to run away from immediately. And so if there's a way to diffuse the that rage at the four o'clock a.m. morning moment, that feels like a good skillful practice while not negating the value of the no and certainly not blaming myself for having that rage or anger. That, so it feels like that's a very similar dance to what we were talking about. Like on the one hand, like if I'm going through the litany of things and it's Yom Kippur, like, oh yeah, I did do that thing where I said that thing that I shouldn't have said. Oh, but there was probably, there was, if I spend some time with it, there's something underneath there, which was actually really helpful. That was, so I'm going to try to love that part too. And also see that it might not be skillful or helpful to me now, even though it is part of human nature. Is that, I don't know if that. I like to think of the other, another aspect of it, which sometimes is called emptiness and sometimes called wholeness is that, yeah, we have to do what we can. And like 50 million years ago, like this whole area was an ocean. And like a million years ago, like herds of mastodons were like walking around here. <laughs> and there's something about thinking that the, how overly species precious we are. I don't know. I just feel like in many ways, it's like, how is it that we get so caught in my opinions about things? It doesn't mean that I won't do everything that I can to have a more just and sane world, but how do we hold that? Because I feel like to assume that we'll be around forever is crazy. 
it, first of all, it's just not even possible. Because even our sun will not last forever. Eventually, it just dies, in which it swallows the earth. And so how do we, to me, it, I find it actually very joyful to think about that. Because it's like, wow, I'm going to do everything I can to make a more just, insane world. And knowing that this is also temporary. I find it is really good medicine and allows me to function with more compassion and a bit of lightness, actually. Yeah. And maybe there's one, yeah, there's one pr practice that I do related to uh, intense emotion and is really to be with the energy of it and it's almost go into it fully in my body in it and it feels like um it's and as to as much as possible keep redirecting away from story and thought and just be in the pure energy of it it feels a little bit like riding a knife edge or a wave and so it takes some skill because there's such a subtle and strong uh, habit to go towards acting out about it or suppressing it and the acting out can just be in the thinking or um, and when I can just sit in that energy what can it's like this idea of transmuting what comes up and then you like so it's keeping the energy full on and then it's then like sometimes this idea of like oh this is what I need to do and it feels like so connected to life when I do that. And, and like, where did that even come from? It came out of the energy of that intense rage or the intense desire or the intense fear. So this, some way, and it, you know, takes this discipline to come back, to come back and courage. But, um, yeah. Yeah. I'm with you at 4 a.m. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you had said something about expressing your truth in the, the process, um, that the, the, the steps. Um, as far as the person you're, you're speaking to, quite often they're not in a place where they can receive it yeah. because it's, it's interactional. It's not just you saying it, but to have the power, mm -hmm. whether they have to be able to process it, neither accept it or reject it, mm -hmm. and they're not there. Mm -hmm. How does that play into your process? So the first, I mean, so that you're totally right on. So when, so when we think about timing, what I guess, what, unfortunately, the, from my perspective, well, the Buddha didn't give specific enough instruction for me, <laughs> <laughs> like about timing. So I feel like I'm filling that in with other skill sets. Um, for example, nonviolent communication techniques. This is a big area of practice and study for me right now. And so if someone's not in a place to receive, what you're saying is like they just need empathy. They need, they need empathy, just straight empathy of like understanding what they're feeling and what they might be needing. And so this is really like what are their motivations for what's happening for them. So if you can give them empathy, that can calm their nervous system enough so that they could listen. That might be one thing. The other thing is, um, I always... <laughs> it's a nice choice. <laughs> yeah. 
I always ask for consent. So this is a place, consent in giving feedback. It's like, are you, are you open to hearing some feedback? Okay, if not now, when's a good time that we could do this together? I really need to share this. And you can say why. I want to share this because I, it's, dis, it's for me, I want to be, feel more connected to you. And I, and I can't unless I share this piece with you. Or some way that they're, you can tell them why it matters to you that they could care about of why you want to say that can open it too. But there's a whole world in there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to add another possibility because of an experience that I had was that actually one of these teachers who was spreading rumors about me. So I, I went and met with him and said, so <laughs> I hear you're spreading rumors about me. And he said, yes, I am. And I said, okay, well, is that your experience? Are any of the things that you're sharing with other people your experience? And he said, no. And I said, well, how is it that you would feel free to do that? And he said, I speak truth to power. And I said, I was like, well, I think we have a different idea maybe about truth and power. And if you ever really wanted to check out any of those things, let me know. And then, you know, afterwards, he was just like, Pfft. and, you know, unfriended me on Facebook. And uh, <laughs> the ultimate you know, punishment he showed me. But like, but I think we have to be, we have to be open to that someone isn't just because we're going to say like, wow, I don't think that's so skillful. Or like when you do that, that feels bad. It doesn't mean that the person can be like, oh, thank you so much for telling me. Like, <laughs> let's work on that together. It doesn't mean that there's gonna be a shared willingness. <laughs> so I think it's just important to also let go of expectations. Someone was telling me the other day about expectations and they're so tricky. That someone said that like they're set up for resentment. Expectation is a setup or can be a setup for, for resentment. So if I expect the conversation, it's such an interesting thing. I don't know who said it, but I just did. But somebody else also <laughs> said it. But uh, I think it's a really, so if we go into a conversation about truth with some expectation of how it's going to go, we pretty variant in my experience. Thank you. Do we have more questions? None? All right. <laughs> Hi, can you speak a little more on silent meditation and mm. what you, what a person would get from that? Oh, yeah. Great. Well. <laughs> I'll, I mean, maybe I'll just say, I like to talk about what's on the edge of what's real for me right now, so I'll talk about that. Um, what I feel like I got out of doing a lot of intensive silent meditation was a deep and precise understanding of how my mind and, and body and heart function. So I got a real, I got to see really closely the cause and effect relationship between different kinds of thoughts, emotions, feelings, um, habits of my mind, 
where my mind's like go-to techniques for dealing with things, you know? And also part of that is you really learn not to believe your thoughts and not take your emotions so seriously, not take your thoughts so seriously. It's very deep in that way. I also did a lot of loving kindness practice, so that self-compassion. I actually did a few months straight of just loving kindness and a lot of self-compassion. And I feel like that developed inside of me. Like this, there's this idea of the secure base as a parent. If you're like, if you, if you do a good enough job parenting, your child grows up with a sense of like, I'm okay and the world is okay. And you have the sense of security and safety inside of you, a place of um, tenderness and safety. And I feel like I developed that through intensive loving kindness practice. And that's like the ground for everything else I can do in the world. Um, but it really feels like at this point, where, where I, what's alive for me and what I'm excited about is like that feels like the foundation. That's just like grammar school, right? Of like, okay, I can follow, I can track my mind. So, I, so it's harder for my mind to trick me into like believe, being like, if it's telling me a story about some situation, I'm like, come on, JMO, that's, that's not true. You're, you're sort of being a jerk. You know, it's, it's, there's a, a precision to what's happening in my mind and my heart. But then that's the foundation for then going out into the world. Like, I wish every activist in the world would go do a three-month silent retreat. I wish, um, well, I wish a lot of people would do it. <laughs> but definitely people that want to change things in the world. I feel like there's a, such a power. And so this woman that I'm working with now is a major activist in the world. Uh, her name is Mickey Kashtan. She teaches nonviolent communication and collaboration. She's part of Extinction Rebellion. And it's really radical ways of exploring and deconstructing capitalism, patriarchy, racism. And she is working with our organization. And there's some folks in the room who work with us. And she just said, like, I love working with you all. You guys picked this up so quickly. And I'm like, yeah, we do, because the mind is so well-trained that we can pick up these next steps about how to be in the world and be active in much more functional ways than it sounds like some of the people she's working with in some of those activist circles. So that's, what, that's also what I'm excited about, intensive practice right now. I think it would make us a lot more effective about everything else we want to do in the world. Yeah. Can I just do a quick piggyback, which is also a plug, and it looks like we're about to wrap up. But for me, my first, I, my first silent meditation retreat was in a Jewish context, and it was kind of a hybrid of Buddhism and Judaism, like some of us on the panel here. And, and um, I felt like I got the answer key to my Jewish practice that previously had just been a befuddlement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that by, when I did that first retreat, I had been halakhically orthodox, like pretty orthodox practicing for about 10 years. And I felt as though... I suddenly, like every, every ritual act was so imbued with the sacred and the holy because the mind was quieter. And just little moments, little movements of mind, little movements of compassion felt so juicy and tender and beautiful. Uh, and I am sort of, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I'm like a true, if I'm a fundamentalist about anything, it's about silent meditation retreat. Um, the plug part, is that I'm now fortunate enough to co-lead a, a Jewishy mindful, mindfulness retreat at, at Isabel Friedman Retreat Center Christmas week, December 22nd through 29th this year. Our flyers Hanukkah are ready. Hanukkah week too, by the way. What's that? Hanukkah week too, actually. Right, Hanukkah, exactly Hanukkah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird this year. It just happens to be over, exactly over Hanukkah. And um, 
it's so what a privilege to be with you know 70 ish people doing this kind of crazy thing that's this also this unfolding and everyone's journey is different and it just um it's funny like we didn't really touch too much on the buddhism judaism piece but for me it's like it, the, the two are such a reinforcing there's such a and the work that's done here at macomb i can't believe does susie do people know that you're leaving macomb do people know that yet oh my god so please let afterwards we're all going to go give susie a big hug and not let her leave because uh, the work that's been done here for so many years is part of that flavor so for me having that extra little piece on top of my sort of just meditation practice has been such a gift i feel like really really fortunate to be the part of the sliver of the world population that that has it amen <laughs> on that note um Yes, do, do a plug. Do, oh. Just do a little plug. In the back, so as, as was mentioned, I um, run an organization and we lead meditation retreats for teenagers. And so there's a flyer in the back. We have two New Year's retreats for teenagers, uh, one in Massachusetts and one in Virginia. And maybe the people who, there's a few of our volunteer staff who come to all our retreats. Maybe they could wave their hands. These lovely people take care of the young people too. <laughs> Um, so if you have a teenager or, um, no teens that you think you could convince to go on a meditation retreat for five days, um, send them our way and, uh, they're really, really impactful and very relational. So check that out in the back. And we will have, do you have a plug? Just, yeah, just one <laughs> last thing. So we do have our centers on 23rd street in Manhattan this little island of ours, um, between 6th and 7th, just take the one train, not such a schlep. We have silent meditation and chanting and uh, lots of wonderful programs. It's uh, called zencare.org is the website. You're all welcome. We have sitting that's free and open to the public every day. So, As well as here every morning and night. And we could keep going on because we're doing such holy, beautiful and work, all of us. And thank you. And I want to make sure we open up our doors and have a chance to gather and interact some more. And, um, and thank you all for joining us. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you.